I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. Today, we're talking about episodes one and two of the team's latest series on Jonathan Irons, a Missouri man who was arrested in 1997 when he was just 16 years old. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, this conversation may not make a whole lot of sense to you, so make sure to go back, listen to them, and then come back to the addendum. We will be here when you get here. Joining me to talk about these two episodes is Taylor Rickard and Kent Gibson. They are criminal defense and appeals attorneys in Kansas City, Missouri. The bulk of their law practice is focused on post-conviction litigation, and they specialize in wrongful convictions. Taylor and Kent, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having us. Also with us is Colin Miller. He is our legal theory, of course, and an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law and one of the hosts of the Undisclosed podcast. Hey, Colin. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? Good, good. So this is a great series. I just want to tell you, uh, I'm really glad that you decided to put this story on the podcast. As usual, I am amazed when I'm producing the episodes at at how bananas it is. We'll talk about that. Uh, First, I'll just orient our listeners with a quick recap. In episode one, the Undisclosed team started telling the story of Jonathan Irons, a 16-year-old accused of a burglary and shooting at the house of Stanley Stotler in O'Fallon, Missouri, shortly before 6.42 p.m. on January 14, 1997. The Undisclosed team noted that the jury did not hear from at least three key witnesses at trial. Marge Zvara, who saw Irons at about 6.25 p.m., Amber Beckman, who saw Irons between 6.30 and 6.42 p.m., and Chris White, who saw Irons at 7 p.m. with the plastic bag he supposedly left at the scene of the crime. In episode two, the team traced the evolution of Stanley Stotler's identification of Jonathan Irons from an initial vague description on the night of the shooting to an inability to identify Irons in a photo array to near certainty that Irons was his shooter by the time of trial. Now, Kent, we first heard from you back on Undisclosed in 2017 in a special episode asking listeners to contact the Missouri governor to stay the execution of Marcellus Williams. Uh, As a follow up, the governor did stay that execution on the day it was scheduled and appointed a board of inquiry to investigate the case. Just to catch us up, can you just let us know what the status on that case is? It is still pending before the board of inquiry. The uh, board had a hearing almost two years ago. It was in August of 2018. Is that right, Taylor? Yes. And uh, there were some uh, follow-up questions and some other things, and we haven't really heard anything from them in several months. I don't know if that has to do with the craziness in the world with the, the courts and everybody else in Missouri being under lockdown for quite a while or or not, but and then it's an election year, so I would be surprised if anything happens before the November elections, one way or the other. Can you just explain why that's the case? I mean, I get it, obviously, um, but can you just like remind listeners why in election year you're less likely to see a decision perhaps reversing a conviction or making a big change in the outcome of a case? Well, even though I, I question the uh, political wisdom of it. I think most politicians don't want to do anything controversial in the right before an election. And 
pardoning or commuting the sentence of somebody on death row would certainly fit the bill. Although uh, I think with the current change in the attitudes toward the death penalty and criminal justice reform in general, I, I dispute that. I think that most, uh, except for the extreme hardcore right-wing law and order types, I think doing something like that would actually help, uh, particularly our Republican governor, get some broader support. But in any event, that, that just doesn't happen. It's the same way with general clemencies and commutations. They usually happen when either the governor is a lame duck or, or term limited. Right. Right. It's unfortunate political facts there. Of course, the political winds are changing a little bit, as you mentioned, and also changing. Um, and I'd recommend any listeners listening to this watch Ava DuVernay's short documentary, The 13th, on Netflix. It's been out for a while, but it's once again in the top 10 list because there is an interesting section in that in which they talk about how some pro-business conservative groups are actually pushing criminal justice reform, not necessarily for the right reason, but it maybe is a good opportunity to help people get out <laughs> despite that. Um, so anyway, that's obviously kind of a side conversation that we can that we can revisit. We have plenty of opportunities to revisit. I'm curious, Taylor, how did you and Kent first become aware of Jonathan Iron's case and how is the story of your representation of him gone? Yeah, so actually Jonathan had contacted Kent quite a few years ago. Um, there's a whole other underlying issue in his case about the fact that he was 16 years old when this crime happened and he was tried as an adult. Um, so he'd actually contacted Kent a long time back, um, interested in having him represent him on that issue alone. Um, nothing really ever came of that, and we didn't hear from him for quite a while and then it wasn't until uh, the summer of 2018, so about two years ago, he had called us and let us know that um, he had found this Brady issue in his case, having to deal with um, a fingerprint that was not disclosed, and asked us if we'd be willing to take over representation for him. And so that's how we got involved. So can you just underline that again? Uh, he was arrested at 16, but he was tried as an adult. How did that happen? So basically, he was certified as an adult. He had another case, um, which ended up getting, I, I believe, I can't remember exactly how it all happened, but based upon his other arrest, they certified him as an adult in this case. And so he ended up being tried as an adult. Huh. Uh, what are your impressions of Jonathan? I'd love to hear from both of you. Taylor, starting with you and working with him, speaking with him, working on this case. Um what is he like to work with? Uh, what is his experience like right now? And if anything that you would like listeners to know about him that you've learned, I'd love for you to get a chance to talk about that. Yeah. So Jonathan is actually extremely hands-on involved in his representation. Um, I think of any of the clients we've represented before, he's probably one of the most involved in the actual process and making sure that his stamp is on everything that we have filed, um, which is kind of unique. Certain clients really tend to have less of an interest in what we file. I, you know, they like to know exactly what we're going to do, but they don't necessarily need to be involved in the writing process and the research process. And Jonathan is really, that's something that's really important to him. Does that make it complicated or does that make it easier both? <laughs> I think a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, when he actually hired our firm to represent him, he had done a pretty substantial draft of the petition that we ended up filing um, and I tried to use, and Kent and I tried to use as much of that as we could incorporate into his petition that we ended up filing in the court. Um, so it's helpful in that he has a lot of good ideas. And um, in criminal cases, obviously, 
the defendant's the one that knows the most about what happened in their case. So having that kind of input is always helpful. Yeah. What else did you want to say about him before I interrupted you getting in and working with him? Um, just that he's a really, he's a nice guy. I mean, I talk to Jonathan almost daily. Um, he's really, not only does he care about the legal side of things, he also, you know, really likes having a personal relationship with both Kent and I, and he likes to check in on us and, um, <laughs> Just an all-around good guy. So. Can you share that impression of Jonathan? I do. Uh, just to expand on that, I think there's two types of clients you usually have when you're representing prisoners who are t- you're trying to get out. One is the person that's usually very intelligent, has educated themselves in the, the law and, and the facts of their case and want to screen everything before it gets filed to beat with their approval and the other type is ones that say I'm I'm more worried about my day to day life in prison, not getting stabbed in the back and making the best of a bad situation. You're the lawyer. Just file what you need to file and send me a copy. Um, from my experience, I prefer the types like Jonathan that are more hands on because uh, I think it's a lot of times they can be very helpful and uh, and they have a a lot of times, such such a, a big amount of time on their hands. I've actually had cases where they have clients have found uh, done research and actually found cases and authorities that have helped us and saved us time. So hmm. I appreciate the the more hands on type of client myself. Well, I'm sure they appreciate you as well because I'm sure not every lawyer would feel the same way about a client being as involved. Now, Colin, you have talked to Jonathan. We've heard his voice a lot on the podcast. Uh, what are your impressions of him? Yeah, I think a lot of the same of what Kent and Taylor shared. Um, I analogize it to Theophilus Wilson, another teenager whose case we covered earlier this year. Um, they just both are so involved in their cases and are so thirsty to learn about the law and ways to reform, actually, the criminal justice system. As we'll hear from Jonathan in a later episode, he actually has had the chance to work in the law library at the prison, and that's really, I think, shaped and informed many of the views he has in the criminal justice system. And then, you know, I think as both Kent and Taylor said, he's a really nice guy. You heard this past episode, the amount of empathy he has for Stanley Stotler saying he wants to go fishing with him. And so, yeah, I mean, he is just, I think... If and when he is released, which I think, you know, hopefully is is coming very soon, he's not just someone who's going to come out and not know what to do. I think he has a very clear picture of what he wants to accomplish. And I can see him taking a lot of social activism positions and really trying to make some reforms for the better in the criminal justice field. Colin, why is it that you were first interested in this case? Uh, There was a New York Times article last summer, I believe, about Maya Moore, the WNBA player, taking a sabbatical from the WNBA and working on this case of Jonathan Irons and just reading the article, it was so compelling to me that I reached out to see whether we could cover the case and help in any way. And that's what initially led to the interest in the case from us. Wow. Now, Kent, uh, you've been doing appellate work for years. Uh, You've seen a lot of witnesses whose statements have evolved, um, as we've heard on Undisclosed. A lot of uh, wrongfully convicted people were convicted based on evolving or false witness statements. 
Have you ever seen anything quite like the ways in which Stanley Stotler's statement evolved and became more detailed and the pretty clear path as to how that happened? Have you ever seen anything like this before? Nothing involving an eyewitness to this extent, although it's not uncommon for an eyewitness to become more certain as the case evolves and gets through the process because they get reinforcement not only from the police who uh, give them the old pat on the back saying you you pick the right person, but then when it gets into the prosecution stage, most prosecutors' offices have witness advocates and uh, who whose job is to just deal with the witnesses and they get reinforcement from them. And they, I think they get more confident and certain generally in what that they're, they're uh, even if they're not, even in, if in the back of their mind, they may not be certain of when they're told repeatedly by the police and the prosecutors that this guy's guilty, he's a bad guy, you've got, you've got to see this through or else he may walk and do this to somebody else. However, in this case, the I've never seen where an eyewitness has been fed police reports and other evidence to reinforce their their uh, initial shaky identification. You see it a lot more often in cases with jailhouse informants where oftentimes uh, crooked cops will feed the jailhouse informants uh, some of the police reports and things so they can credibly say that the client uh, or the the guy they're snitching on uh, admitted facts of the case that only the defendant would know because it wasn't in the media and things like that. So, um, But I've never seen anything like this where an eyewitness, because of being shaky in the initial phases, wants to look at the police reports to try to shore up their, their identification. It's uh, nothing I've never ever seen in 30 plus years as a criminal defense lawyer. I think it's important to point out he wasn't just an eyewitness. He was also the victim of the crime. So he had sort of two roles here. Like There are two reasons why the police, I don't want to, I mean, I don't know what the rules are in Missouri in this jurisdiction, but like where I live, I know I working as a journalist, you can't see anything from the police, no matter who you are, while a case is open and until it's been fully litigated, meaning any potential appeals, which means you very often have to file, you know, really extensive requests to get anything, um, even if there's an appeal that's not even, you know, pending. Um, Taylor, what about you? The idea that, like, he's both a victim and a witness, he is going to be the star witness, and he's handed over police reports that detail investigation into a suspect. Like, that's bananas, Right. You don't have to say bananas. You're a lawyer. That's my word. <laughs> I mean, from the 911 call, the initial description that Stotler, the victim, had given was extremely vague. I mean, just it was a black male. And the fact that his identification of Jonathan as the perpetrator evolved so closely along the timeline of when he was given all of those reports. I mean, that's pretty telling that he didn't remember exactly what the shooter looked like. He only saw him for a very brief second. He'd actually been shot in the head. Um, And the fact that, you know, he'd been fed all this information from detectives and the police reports. And um, when they went to go visit him in the hospital when he was recovering from this, from his injuries, um, it's pretty clear that, you know, he didn't remember and all this was entirely fed to him. Colin, I've got a question for you that you may or may not be able to answer. Um, I know that the series is specifically focusing on sort of the miscarriages of justice around Iron's arrest, his prosecution, his trials. But 
I had a lot of questions about Stanley Stotler's 911 call, about his recollection of events of the crime itself. Um, can you just tell me whether or not you also had questions about that? Because the story itself, it doesn't, I mean, I found myself asking, for instance, are we 100% sure that there was a shooter? Because we hear that, you know, he had a gun. We don't hear a lot about, you know, other circumstances around the crime. Um, is that going to come into play in the series at all? Or am I just as a listener speculating and being curious? Yeah, I mean, those are questions that Susan Simpson, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, obviously, had about the case. And there are just so many changes that occur in his story. You almost wonder, how can there be that many changes? And of course, we spoke to the eyewitness experts, and they sort of talked about shift and stick and how you can change a person's memory. Um, I think it's probably related to the gunshot wound to the head. We didn't go into all the nature of the injuries and how much rehab he had to do, but it was quite extensive. And so... I don't know for certain, but I have to imagine that caused issues of memory that, Mm. you know, otherwise you might look at it and say, oh, well, if he's just shot in the arm, how could these changes occur? How does this story make sense? But when you learn he's shot in the temple and has a lot of damage and rehab kind of maybe makes more sense how this story might shift all these different ways. Yeah, that's that's probably true as well. Now, Taylor, we did hear in the episode about another issue around the investigation, um, the photo array issue, and that Jonathan's photo was substantially larger than the others. You know, I think about when you are playing a card trick on a very small child and you're saying pick a card, any card, but you have one that's sort of like poking out a little bit. Um, That's how it felt to me when I hear that one photo is in color and the others are in black and white or vice versa or one is larger. Did that stick out to you initially when you were looking into this case? Absolutely. I mean, Jonathan's head in the photo lineup is substantially larger. And Dr. Lampinen, who was the eyewitness expert that we used in this case, um, when he measured it, Jonathan's head was 25% larger than the average photo in the photo array, but was actually even 13% larger than the next largest head Mm. in the photographs or in the photographs. So, um, I mean, just looking at it from, and I've had people just take a look at it and point out who they think stands out. And Jonathan is always who people choose. Right. Right. I mean, it's just like the card trick, right? Pick a card, any card. How about this one that's a little bit easier to get? Um, Kent, a posting from a few years ago on the Midwestern Innocence Project page says that Missouri is behind the times in passing eyewitness identification reforms despite legislative efforts. What is the status of that now? Um, How do you work with that in the cases that you're handling on appeal? Well, uh Based on a Supreme Court of Missouri case back in the late 80s, the the court had held that it wasn't reversible error for a trial judge not to let an eyewitness expert testify. Um, And that's been the law for, uh, and it still is, there is a case that the uh, Supreme Court has in front of them now where they have an opportunity to overturn that, where interestingly enough, in a St. Louis case, uh, Dr. Lampinen was the expert that the the trial court that would not let testify. Um, and uh, that case was argued earlier this year and a decision could come down any time. But in the meantime, there's still no statutory response to, to this issue. However, the Missouri Supreme Court did promulgate a, a jury instruction that can be given just on general factors 
the jury can consider that sort of track a lot of the issues from the research and the, the case law about, uh, you know, the opportunity to view and the uh, length of the duration of the uh, encounter and whether the witness was intoxicated or, you know, things like that. But it doesn't really give any context to the specific problems that might exist in the case. Do you think jury instructions move the needle a lot? I mean, I, I mean, I think we hear all the time that jurors expect to hear a story from the prosecutor and the defense. And sometimes it's the person who comes with the best story that wins. And then if the jury instruction comes at the very end after they've absorbed all this information, is that enough? Or is that just t- checking a box to say we did something? I, I don't think so. I, I, I've always taken the view of, as both the trial attorney and the appellate attorney that the jury instructions ought to be short, sweet, and simple. And if you've got a straightforward defense as to whether or not this guy did it, uh, sometimes complicated jury instructions just muddle everything. And uh, right. I think uh, I think it's more important uh, just general issues of credibility of the witnesses, which uh, is usually set forth in the initial instructions or what usually I emphasize and what uh, most uh, trial lawyers do. Taylor, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, even if there is a jury instruction, if they just made it so that the practices, they changed their practices and that this didn't happen in the first place, then we wouldn't need to have jury instructions anyways. Right. Right. It reminds me of on like every uh, trial procedural when a witness says something and the judge says the jury will disregard. And you're like, come on. (laughs) No way. The jury is going to disregard an outburst or whatever it was that they always see on the on the show. Now, Colin, we heard on one of the episodes from Dr. Eisen talking about um, the shift and stick research he's done. Can you just once again explain what that research is and what it shows? Yeah, I mean, I for years have read the literature on eyewitness IDs and know the limitations and have seen a lot of studies and it would take a lot to surprise me. And this is one of the few cases where it really has Um, Knowing what happened here, where initially Stanley Stotler says, I can't pick anyone, and then the officer says, make a guess, I did this research and found Dr. Eisen's article where essentially, you know, you have 10 research subjects, and you show them a video with a person. You ask them to pick a person out of a six-person photo array, and either they pick someone or say, I can't pick anyone. And then all the researcher does is say, are you sure... Do you mm. recognize anyone else? And by doing that, six out of the 10 research subjects shift to someone else and then just giving them some positive feedback about their new pick is the stick is they have now shifted from their initial selection of no one or say person number three in the lineup. And then they've moved to say person number six, positive feedback and it sticks. So that was just astounding to me that 60% of them just by simply saying, are you sure? Do you recognize anybody else? Just show how malleable eyewitness ideas can be and how much you can change a person's memory. So this doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, Do you want to hear why, Colin? If you go to a restaurant and you say, uh, I know you're like a Piscatarian, right? So if you say, I'll have the haddock and your waiter says, are you sure? 
you are 100% going to say, what would you recommend that I have? Or what should I have? Or you're going to say, you know what, forget it, I'll get the salmon. Not 100%, but most of the time, right? Like the, the are you sure question from any person that you feel has any more knowledge than you do is an incredibly loaded question. I listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR program, every weekend. And Peter Sagal will ask a you know person on the phone a, a quiz question. And when if they get it wrong, and he'll be like, are you sure? And everyone knows what that means, right? Right, which also calls for having these to be double-blind eyewitness yes. IDs, which a lot of jurisdictions, of course, have now. And, of course, it was not the case here where very much they knew who the suspect was. And... Yeah. I mean, obviously, Stanley Stotler, upon hearing, you know, make guess, he's going to guess someone. Um, And then obviously, when given the police reports, when eventually he's asked to make that ID in court, he's going to make that identification. Taylor, you're 100% going to use my restaurant analogy in court someday, aren't you? Because that was good. (laughs) But it's all like it's all I could think about. I mean, any I mean, I, I think that people really underestimate um, the extent to which most people do not have contact with the police and are not witnesses ever, and that this is the one time in their whole lives where they'll be asked a series of questions about what they remember, what they know. So it's not like you have practice doing critical thinking around this scenario. And the opportunities there for manipulation, for um, influence, to me are just so much greater because it isn't a scenario we face in our everyday life. Um, which is why I think of the restaurant one, because that is a scenario we face all the time. And yet we still, with a little bit of influence, you know, if you ask your server, for instance, is this good? They'll say, you know what? I haven't tried it. Everyone knows that's code for order something else. (laughs) Like everyone knows. What do you think, Taylor? Did that also surprise you to hear that extent to which this shift and stick thing works? Yeah. And I think something that is really important in this case is that, you know, Stotler was white and Jonathan is a black male. And the fact that it's a cross-racial identification makes this even more problematic. Um, You know, at the time that this crime happened, I believe the county had less than a 5% Black population. And so, you know, seeing a Black male in the community wasn't something that, you know, was happening every single day. And I think that in itself um, is hugely problematic. Yeah. Uh, Now, Ken, we heard in episode one about Amber Beckman saying she saw Jonathan between 630 and 640 during her Bible study time. Uh, While there may have been issues with calling her as a witness because she said he had a plastic bag, her sister Crystal said that defense counsel never even contacted them. Why? Do we know why? Well, the, the trial counsel testified at the hearing last year that she didn't have any specific recollection as to why she didn't contact them. But it they were all of these people from the neighborhood. Jonathan's friends and acquaintances were interviewed by the police. Their names and addresses were in the police reports. So any reasonably competent uh, attorney would have talked to all these people. And I, I think given my background working for the Missouri public defender system, when I first got out of law school, I'm and it's even wor- it got progressively worse even back when I was a young lawyer is that uh, the public defender's caseloads are overwhelming and they just don't have the amount of time to uh, devote to a case that that it, that it deserves. So it's uh, I think if all if all of these uh, witnesses had been interviewed and many, if not all of them being been called, uh, the jury could have been painted a really strong picture that it was not possible given the timeline and other things that he committed this crime. 
What about you, Taylor? Are you surprised or have any insight as to why these potential really great defense witnesses were never even contacted? Um, I think, you know, just going off of what Ket said, um, you know, there was the issue with the plastic bag. And and quite frankly, I, I don't think in Christine Sullivan, who was a trial attorney, just really had the time to invest all in prepping for Jonathan's trial. Um, and, and I really think that that's why. And all this stuff was disclosed to her before trial. She had all of their addresses. They had never moved before trial. They would have been willing to testify. Um, and I think it was just a matter of her not being fully prepared because she probably did not have the time to get ready for trial. Colin, can you remind us about some of the complications around the different iterations of the plastic bag that we hear from witnesses in this case? Because, you know, there's a plastic bag found at the scene, correct? There's a plastic bag found outside the window, which is the point of entry to the basement to the house, and it has a CD player and 12 CDs. And yeah, some of the issues are what color plastic bag does Jonathan Irons have? Is it white or is it more of a brown or a tan? Um, When did he initially have that plastic bag? That was sort of what we highlighted in the first episode is that he says... He had someone at the gas station, the Shell station, get him alcohol, and that's when he got it, shortly before 6 p.m., which is the first time that someone sees him with a plastic bag, that being Scott Emberton. Um, And, you know, the biggest thing for me, and I've been trying to reach him and find him, Chris White, I haven't found him yet, but that, as I expressed to Jonathan when I spoke to him, I thought was sort of the most essential part of his case is that Chris White, this 12-year-old in the neighborhood, sees him with the plastic bag and a brown paper bag at about 7 p.m., which, of course, is after the burglary at Stanley Stotler's house, which, A, would say whatever bag he had, he wasn't the person who left this plastic bag at the crime scene. And then, B, it being the plastic bag and the brown paper bag, that's very consistent with Jonathan's story. This wasn't a bag that I had to lug around these CDs that I played at my friend's house, this was a plastic bag and the brown paper bag that typically you would get alcohol from, you know, a gas station or other places that sell alcohol. So for me, Chris White, I think, is a very key witness in this case that, again, should have been contacted by the defense, but was not presented at trial. Was the prosecutor's theory, Colin, that uh, the plastic bag with the CDs and the CD player were left by the perpetrator like, I'm just going to put this down right here? break into this house and go shoot this guy? Like, that was the theory of the crime? I mean, I th- I don't know that it's explicitly stated. Maybe maybe Taylor can't have more insight, but I, w- I would guess it's more implied it was sort of an accident that, you know, this is a person who is desperate to commit this burglary, breaks the window, and then sort of accidentally leaves the bag behind outside. But I don't know that it's explicitly stated in the transcript whether this was thought to be intentional or accidental. Yeah, I'm curious about it, too, because I just kept thinking, like, what if the plastic bag with the CD posters has nothing to do with this? What if someone just put it there or was coming to get it later or put it down to go, you know, see if, you know what I mean? There's like a lot of there might be some connection I don't know about. Taylor, do you have any insight into that? What that theory of the state's theory of the crime was as to the role that the plastic bag with the CD player had in the, in the crime? Yeah, I mean, I think, and like Colin said, I don't think it's explicitly stated in the transcript or anything, but I think their whole theory was that, you know, the perpetrator had broken in through the basement window, um, had the intent to go into the house to, um, you know, burglarize it. And so when he came back out out of the house through the basement window, he would have just taken the bag back along with him and left. Okay, so it was like, I'm just going to leave this here. 
I'm going somewhere with this item. Go go commit this crime. Just leave this here for a second and then pick it up and then casually go home with my stuff. That way you would have more, you could carry out more loot, I guess would be the, <laughs> yeah, if you had the, uh, the had to carry that in. So, and I think that if I, the argument would be that uh, if he hadn't been uh, interrupted by Stotler, he would have just gone out the way he came in and grabbed his CDs and been on his merry way. Right, right. I mean, it does strike me, too, there's just like a lot of stereotyping at play here, too, with the CD player and the CDs and like a young black kid. It just it, These are details that just having listened to and read about and covered so many cases, they just sort of pop out at me as like those unconscious bias stereotypes that... I always have questions about. Ken, so Colin has told me, as a producer of the show, that episodes three and four will deal with fingerprints, Jonathan's police interrogations, and the gun shown to the jury at trial. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to note about this case that you think listeners should know about as they're considering um, what happened here? Well, I I think you touched on it a little earlier, but um, we did as. St. Charles County, where this happened, is an exurb of, of St. Louis. And uh, back 23 years ago, it was uh, there were little to f- very few black people lived there. I think they, now there's more, but uh, he would have stuck out like a sore thumb in that in that neighborhood. And uh, the fact that he was, they had evidence that he was there visiting friends around that time. That immediately put a target on his back and the police did whatever they could to, uh, to, uh, make a case against him, which is what the, and the other thing about the gun, which was so amazing is there was absolutely no evidence that this gun was connected to either Jonathan or the crime. In fact, the police officer said a confidential informant found it and gave it to him. And just because it happened to be the same caliber as the, uh, as the gun that was used, although they couldn't match any ballistics or anything, they they were able to get that in, and the lawyer didn't object, despite the fact that there's a long line of case law saying that guns unrelated to the defendant or the crime are inherently prejudicial and shouldn't be admitted into evidence because <laughs> it distracts the jury. Yeah. It would be like me being in a room with you and, and saying to somebody, look at that giant knife, and now look at Kent. Look at that giant knife again. Now look at Kent. All right, what do you think about Kent? Like it, 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 You would imagine that that wouldn't be allowed. It's amazing to me that it is. Like, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Taylor, what about you? Is there anything else that you would like listeners to know about this case? Yeah, I mean, I think we've touched a little bit so far on some of the misconduct by the police department in um, you know, how they handled the identification of Jonathan by Stotler. Um, but along with the fingerprints and the police interrogation, there is so much more governmental misconduct that we have not heard yet. So um, I think, you know, that's really, really important to remember is that how many problems there are in this case by not just the police department, but um, other agencies as well. And we actually won our case in the circuit court on this fingerprint issue. And, you know, there's a lot of compelling stuff in this case. And there's a lot of questions that we never had answers to before trial, but this fingerprint report is so critical. Hmm. All right. Well, so Taylor Rickard and Kent Gibson, your criminal defense attorneys in Kansas City working on this case. It was so great to talk to you about Jonathan Irons and the case. You really provided a lot of detail that I had questions about. So thank you so much. 
Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Great. So, Colin, you have been tweeting about working on something that's been very much in the news, and that's the Brianna Taylor case. Um, can you just remind listeners about that case if, in case they've been living under a rock? And also, what can you tell us about your work on it? Yeah, so Brianna Taylor was an emergency room technician in Louisville, Kentucky. And one night back earlier this year, police executed a no-knock warrant, meaning they don't have to knock and announce their presence when they are executing the warrant. And so they execute this no-knock warrant about 12.30 a.m. And Brianna's boyfriend, thinking it's intruders, fires a single shot at the Louisville police. Louisville police respond by spraying over 20 bullets into their apartment and adjacent apartment. And about eight of those shots hit Brianna Taylor, causing her death. And the question in the wake of this, several questions, A, should we have no-knock warrants? And so my students... No. Uh, okay, no. <laughs> next question. <laughs> right. That's, that, that's the quick and easy answer. My, my students, Jasmine Carruthers, AC Parham, and myself, have been researching this issue and found, you know, no-knock warrants, they target people of color, they are routinely rubber-stamped by judges without any scrutiny, they lead to all sorts of injuries and deaths, and so... We worked with the attorneys in the case to get Brianna's law passed in Louisville, which bans the use of no-knock warrants. And now members of Congress have passed legislation that hopefully nationwide these will be banned. And then we're also working with the attorneys on the civil lawsuit against the police officers. Um, this raises the dreaded phrase qualified immunity that so many of our listeners have heard of where oftentimes police can evade civil liability. Um, but we've, over the past week or so, identified several similar cases that we think will support her claim, her family's claim that she should get justice and get a recovery against the officers in this case. Now, the Supreme Court just declined to take up uh, a change, looking at a change in that liability shield, right? Yeah, there have been several over the past few weeks, several cases. One, which I wanted to get involved with, out of Fresno, where the allegation was that the police during a search warrant stole money from the person's house and didn't return it. And this is what happens in these qualified immunity cases. They look at it and say, okay, is there clearly established federal law that this violates a constitutional right? Well, you know what? We haven't found any cases where police have stolen money during a search warrant and that's led to liability. So it's not clearly established federal law. Um, and that's that's right. ridiculous. But you kind of see what the point is, is, well, of course, that violates federal law and constitutional rights. It's so obvious that, you know, it's not something you see in court opinions. And that's the problem with qualified immunity is that oftentimes courts look at it so narrowly and say, well, no court has addressed this particular factual circumstance. And therefore, there's qualified immunity, meaning the law enforcement officers can't be sued. And so, yeah, there's an effort legislation by um, Representative Amash to repeal that. There have been calls to the Supreme Court, but so far they haven't taken any cases. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea, it's so funny because anytime a story comes up, and you've talked about this in the podcast before, about sort of the 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 statutes around shielding police officers who are on the job and what it is that they aren't able to be either sued for or prosecuted for as a result of those 
statutes and a result of the lack of legal precedent, you know, I think about sexual assault as being one of this. And this isn't the same category. You know, states are having to consider whether or not a person in custody can consent uh, is insane to me. That, that, that a state or a court would have to consider whether or not a police officer who stole during a search uh, would be liable for that theft is insane to me. It really is something. Um, and it brings me to something I wanted to ask you about that I saw on social media a couple weeks ago. Rand Paul, I guess, was looking at this no-knock warrant issue. And it just made me think, like, where... <laughs> As much as we don't always think that they should weigh in on every issue, and that's not a political opinion, it's just one of, like, logistics, where are the libertarians on this? I mean, there are so many libertarians in Congress who were elected on this, like, very libertarian wave of, like, post-Obama sort of anger about government intrusion and, you know, drones and... Uh, you know, rights that were stripped after 9-11, you know, plus all these conservative values. Like, why aren't libertarians all over this no-knock warrant thing? Or are they? And I've just and I've only seen Rand Paul tweet about it. No, I mean, this is definitely something that they're not necessarily that vocal. But this is one of those areas where certainly there's an overlap uh, demographically with partisan politics, with criminal justice issues. And it's one of the reasons why um, I often write amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, including a case that's currently pending regarding excessive force, is that it's one of those areas where both in terms of judges and politicians, you'll find a lot of overlap because, yeah, libertarians are very much small government. They want to protect individual liberties. And so, yeah, this is one of those cases, certainly with no-knock warrants. There's, There's reason to believe that we could see a national ban coming in the next year because you would see that overlap and enough in the libertarian constituency who say we need to ban these, such as Rand Paul. Yeah. So we did get a question from a listener who, I guess her Twitter handle, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Oh, heck, I will. Uh, Cassie Wassie Duda. (laughs) And I don't want that to take away from (laughs) the earnestness of her question. Uh, Wants to know, I'm assuming it's a her. Sorry if I'm being uh, gender normative there. Um, Is there any further update on Jamar Huggins? He is one of those cases you covered that I think of often. Colin, do you know the answer to that question? Yeah, absolutely. So Jamar Huggins is the man here in South Carolina who was convicted of a home invasion and the only witness against him has recanted since and said, here's the actual person who committed the crime. And yeah, I'm working with Jamar's attorney a couple weeks ago, maybe about a month now. She actually got to go to the solicitor's office, which is the name for the prosecutor here in South Carolina, and get all the police files in his case. And so we're sort of digging through to see what's in those files. And we're sort of in final preparations on filing a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel that we think is going to lead to a new trial. Hmm. And Jesse Lee SC would like to know, Colin, have you looked into how to start an innocence project here in South Carolina? We need one. Thoughts? Great question. So A, yes, I've looked into it. And B, literally this Monday or Tuesday, I forget which day, I got an email from attorneys who are looking to restart what's called the Palmetto Innocence Project here in South Carolina. And so I am in talks with them about restarting that, possibly with our law school here at South Carolina playing a role. So stay tuned. We're in preliminary talks, and I'm hopeful they're going to turn out to lead to the reinvigoration of the Palmetto Innocence Project. Colin, I can't thank you enough for everything that you're doing out in the world, not just on Undisclosed, but in the world 
fighting the good fight. I've got to tell everyone again, I cannot say it enough. If you are interested in criminal justice issues, if you're interested in someone who knows everything about how they should be reformed and is also doing a lot of that work, follow Colin Miller on Twitter, read his blog. You are legitimately one of the best, brightest, uh, and smartest, and loveliest, and also fightingest people I know. I'm just so proud to know you, and thank you for letting me host your podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. And if you have questions about this case or any of the cases covered on Undisclosed, you can ask them on social media. Just look for Undisclosed Pod on all the platforms. Production for The Addendum is by the brilliant Hannah McCarthy. If you want to hear more of me, check out my true crime review podcast, Crime Writers On. Thanks so much to executive producer Methel Telhan and to Colin, Rabia, and Susan for continuing to let me be part of their work. For everyone at Undisclosed, thanks so much for listening, and there's a lot more to come next week. <laughs>